We are going to go to Philippians chapter 4. We've been preaching through 1 Corinthians, but we're going to pause it this week, do Philippians 4, and then the next few weeks after that, we're going to get into Luke uh, to do our messages for Easter. So we are in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Title of it is, How Not to Be Anxious. I don't want to assume that because of this COVID-19 thing that you're uh, anxiety meter is reaching its breaking point. And yet, there is, uh, could be reason in your life for more anxiousness. We all know what's going on. I don't want to recount it all, but um, I wanted to talk towards that issue. Prime text for season like this is Philippians 4. Many of you have turned to this text during difficult times to remind yourself that God is God and that you can rejoice and that you don't have to be anxious for anything. And so I want to, to talk to that, but I, I want to try to answer the question, okay, how do we do it? How do we actually, during times like this or other difficult seasons, rejoice in the Lord always and not be anxious for anything? So let me read these verses. I want to pray from Psalm 119, and then I want to jump in, starting with Paul's example. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or let your kindness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that those who walk in your law are blessed. And so God, teach us to seek you and seek after your testimonies with our whole hearts. Teach us to walk in your ways. Teach us to keep your precepts diligently that our ways may be steadfast before you, that we might never be put to shame. God, teach us to praise you with an upright heart. And so, God, don't forsake us now, but send your Holy Spirit that we might learn your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most striking things about this text is that the Apostle Paul wrote it while in prison. And so the author of this letter, um, Paul, wasn't living his best life now. He wasn't experiencing the Roman or even the American dream. When the Apostle Paul was called by Christ to be his ambassador, to be his his apostle, Jesus told Paul that he would show him how much he must suffer for his name's sake. And so imagine that. That's what Paul is experiencing now. Paul suffered. This letter, as I mentioned, was written while Paul was in prison. Paul's health, I'm sure, was awful. He had suffered during his ministry, tortures and beatings. He was reviled and hated. Close friends betrayed him, maligned him. He was poor. He had to work to support his own ministry. He didn't have a home. He, he suffered. And so this man isn't writing from uh, a resort. He, he is suffering, and yet he writes to rejoice in the Lord always. He writes that we should be considerate and kind towards others because God is at hand. We are exhorted in this text by the Holy Spirit to be anxious in nothing, but in all things to be prayerful. But how? How? We're going to look in Philippians 4. What we're going to look at here is powerful. I I want you to consider 
our world has been through very difficult plagues before. This COVID-19 pandemic is serious. We should take it seriously, but not at nearly to the degree that previous plagues were. Two plagues, plagues ro- ravaged the Roman world. The first began in 165 AD, the second in 249 AD. Those plagues wiped out somewhere between a quarter and a third of the entire Roman population. By the way, I'm not saying that because I'm predicting that's what this is going to be. I think this will be far, far less um, of a situation. But how uh, those who didn't have Christ responded and how Christians responded was very different. Uh, They were aware, of course, that this plague during that time was contagious. And so if, if someone began to manifest symptoms of the plague, even loved ones, they were simply cast out into the street. And the historians write it that bodies were simply piling up in the streets. Uh, and that's what they were doing to their loved ones. There wasn't much care. Uh, even a famous doctor during that time fled to his country estate. He didn't stick around to help anybody. But the Christians were different. Here is what a non-Christian historian wrote during this time of the Christians. Heedless of danger, they, the Christians, took charge of the sick. Attending to their every need and to ministering to them, they, uh, even those who were departing this life, they themselves were inflicted with the seas, and they drew, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and in curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead, a death that seemed in every way equal to martyrdom. So the Christians became the, the medical folks during that time. One historian calculated that because of the loving, courageous action of Christians during those plagues, the number of deaths was reduced by as much as two-thirds. And so the sacrificial service of the Christians during that time spared lives. But it also spread the gospel. When Christ ascended and the church got its start, there was just a few thousand Christians. By uh, the century after that second plague, there was 33 million Christians in the world. It doesn't uh, take much imagination to realize that the pagans who came in contact with the Christians uh, were astounded by their care. In fact, those who were sick and didn't come into the contact with Christians were much more likely to die, while those who received care from Christians were more likely to live. Those who had been in contact with Christians and lived through the plagues were likely to lose much of their social network. Friends and families passed away, and yet they had met these wonderfully loving Christians, and they began to build relationships with them, and many came to Christ. And so it was by God's providence through these difficult times and the service of Christians that the church was built. And so I want to encourage us during this time that as we look at a text like this, rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Do not be anxious for anything. That this kind of life has power in this world by the Holy Spirit to impact the world greatly. And so we need this text. We need to consider how we might live like this. We need to consider the power of God through his church as we live sacrificially in lives of service, even putting ourselves at risk because of the testimony it has to Jesus and his gospel. And so before we look at 
what I think is a perfectly impossible calling to rejoice always and to never be anxious. Consider, have you ever been asked to do things that are impossible? My kids, like your kids, and my life, like your life, I've been asked to do things and I've said, I can't. It's not possible. Um, to rejoice always and to be anxious for nothing, God might as well tell us to grow gills and swim around in Boom Lake. This is impossible. In fact, we might just say it's just human to complain. It's just human to grumble. It's, it's just regular old people stuff to be anxious. Um, that This isn't possible. And so you and I might sound just like our children when we ask them to do a chore that they don't want to do. And so how many of you actually think this is possible? Uh, let me say it this way. One of the things that you and I are good at is we actually would hold this um, for those in our lives. Like if you're a husband, this actually is the bar for your wife's behavior. You want her to always be reasonable with you. You want her to be rejoicing always and to never be anxious or vice versa. You, as a parent, uh, demand this of your children. You might demand this of each other, but for you yourself, not so much. Right? You, you are less likely to see this, these commands as possible for you, even though you might demand them of others. And so why would God ask this of us? Why would the Holy Spirit command us to rejoice always, to always be reasonable, to be anxious for nothing? So what I did this week is I just spent some time considering that question, why? Why this seemingly impossible command? Why call us to that which seems utterly impossible? Well, the, the first reason is we should always remember that the commands of God always reveal what God is like to us. So whenever you see a command in Scripture, one of the first things you should be considered is, what is this telling me about God? What is this telling me about my Father in heaven? Why does God command that which is harder than holding your breath for five minutes? Well, one of the first things is it tells us who God is. Think about this. Why does God tell us to rejoice in the Lord always? Well, isn't it because God is a God who sits in heaven and rejoices that he isn't a cranky God. He isn't sullen or down or withdrawn. So that when you draw near to this God, you might first remember that he isn't having a bad day. That he is the sovereign Lord over all things and he is eternally rejoicing. We know this in of himself, triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is always delighting in himself. The Father takes the light and the Son and the Son and the Father and the Father and the Son in the Spirit and the Spirit and the Father and the Son. God has been like this for all time. We read throughout Scripture that when God created all of creation, He rejoiced in it. He stood back and said, this is good. God is a happy God and God in the work of redeeming sinful men and women like you and I brings God great joy. Didn't the Holy Spirit tell us that when Christ was going to the cross that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so when we read to rejoice always, to be reasonable always, to never be anxious about anything, first that's telling you what God is like. And that should help your faith, shouldn't it? You're not coming to a God who's fretful. You're not coming to a father who is unreasonable. He knows us. He knows that we are dust and he treats us likewise. And so maybe that will bring you some joy during this time to consider what God is like. 
So that's the first reason. It's revealing God to us. Why does God ask to do that which is impossible so you might see what God is like and might enjoy him? Um, many of you, I assume, are familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The main characters, the Fellowship of the Ring, who were tasked with destroying the great ring of power, went through unspeakable hardship and terror and loss and hunger. The author of the story, J.R. Tolkien, is um, because he's the author of the story, is, is something of the God of the story. He is the sovereign, wise hand writing the end from the beginning. He knows it all. He, he writes a story that isn't boring. It's filled with twists and turns, ups and downs, sorrows and joys, successes and failures. And he writes a good story. And the story, for those who are in the story, actually, they develop, they grow. They're not the same at the end of the story as they were at the beginning. They're better. They develop relationships that will go beyond all other relationships. The relationships that they come out with at the end have been purified. They're wonderful. They're deep. They're strong. They learn something of God, that he is wise, that when all seems lost, it isn't because God is still God and on his throne. And so going through those trials, going through those difficulties, going through those circumstances that on the face of it look for great reason for grumbling, look for great reason to serve yourself and become angry towards others, look for real reason to be anxious about anything. At the end of the story, you can look back on it and say, no, no, they weren't. No, they weren't. So one of the reasons God is telling us to rejoice always, to be anxious about anything, is because your circumstances constantly lie to you. They lie to you. So when God is saying, rejoice always, you'll notice that it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Because God is God no matter what you're going through. He is the author of everything in our lives. He is in control of it all. He's bringing about great good and, and his glory. And so the things, the circumstances, the difficulties that would tempt you to grumble, that would tempt you to treat others unreasonably, that would tempt you to be anxious, to be controlled by anxiety, actually aren't worth it. They, 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 them bearing that fruit is the result of you believing a lie that God is no longer God. During the, I think, the second of the trilogy, Mary and Pippin are taken captive by orcs. And uh, I'd assume it was cause for great anxiety. If they would have known that all of the orcs would be destroyed and that they would meet kindly ents that would take them under their wing and lead them with them into battle and destroy all of Saruman's army and camp, if they would have known that was going to be the end of their captivity, how would that have impacted how they went through it? And how much more us because we know God? And so brothers and sisters, others joining us, if you know one thing about God, know that he is our father. And that the God who is your God, who is my God, who spent his son, is the God who is in control of all these things. So when he's telling you not to be anxious for anything, when he is telling you to rejoice, that is because you can, because he is God. He is teaching you how to deal with yourself. That's the other thing here. 
God is teaching us how to speak to ourselves during these times. Too often we give ourselves too much latitude for grumbling and too much latitude for being controlled by anxiety. We kind of make a, a friend with these things. We just get used to their presence. Um, it's like part of your house that you know needs to be cleaned, but nobody's coming over for a while, and so you just, it's okay. You don't deal with it. Where here we are being trained on what to do with anxiety and what to do with grumbling. Leave no room for them. Leave no room for them at all. You, you must take hold of yourself by faith in Christ and tell yourself, this is reason to rejoice in the Lord. I have no reason to be anxious because God is my God and he listens to every prayer. And at the end of it, his peace will be my peace. And so he is teaching you how to deal with yourself and to no longer listen to the lies of your flesh, lies of the devil, lies of these circumstances that you can actually depend on God and have joy and be reasonable and not be anxious for anything. The the final reason that God speaks to us like this is because God will provide for you. You'll notice, again, rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious for anything. Why? Because you can draw near to God in prayer, and his peace will become your peace. So God is here commanding us to rejoice, to be reasonable, to not be anxious, because that's what he wants to provide for you. God, God's commands include his provision to provide what he commands. And so, brothers and sisters, you are not being asked to uh, pluck up your courage and work up these things in of yourself. That's not what they're there for. They're there to remind you that your heavenly Father is a provider of even that which he commands. So these commands should cause you to despair of your ability to fulfill them and to turn to God. That's why prayer comes right after this. Because you know any of yourself, you cannot rejoice always in the Lord. That that you cannot always be reasonable. That you will often be anxious. But in God, by Christ, by the Holy Spirit, he promises to provide what he's also commanding you. Now, it is true that... uh, you will be cranky, maybe even during this season. You will be unreasonable, and you will be anxious. I can't help but conclude that a part of this command includes our repentance of the opposite, correct? That the only way that you're going to learn to rejoice in the Lord always and to be reasonable and to not be anxious for anything is to learn to repent of when you're not. So that's included in these commands too. That's included in these commands too. And so what you're doing is practicing. And, and don't forget that there will be a day upon your going to heaven to be with God, upon Christ's coming, when you will rejoice in the Lord always. When you will be reasonable always and you'll be around people who are always reasonable that you will never in that day and forevermore have any reason to be anxious about anything. And what we're doing now is practicing for that day. We are by faith and repentance, learning to live like we will then forever. And so have faith. And by the way, as you are and, and maybe cooped up with those you love and 
you need a break. These um, imperatives, these commands, I want to consider, don't demand them of the others. Your spouse, your children, those you, be kind to them. Realize that they're not going to do this very well. Bear with them. Treat your children kindly. Be patient because God is doing a sanctifying work through this in you. He wants to bear this fruit in and through you and the, those you're on. You treat them like you want them to treat you. You aren't what you will be, um, but God is sanctifying you. He promises to conform you to the image of his son. He provides what he commands, but it takes time. You'll notice that the Holy Spirit moves from exhorting us to rejoice, to be kind and reasonable, to not to be anxious in anything, to prayer. But in everything, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious about, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I can't help but encourage you in this season to learn how to pray more. My wife, Mandy, has been reminding us as a family that God is giving us the blessing of slowing down. Our calendar has suddenly become very empty. We don't have many of the evening obligations that we've had before. Uh, and so we have had a week of restfulness. But why not make it a season of prayerfulness? The one thing that we're often prone to neglect is prayer, isn't it? Here we're told to take everything to the Lord in prayer, and we realize in that command how neglectful of it we are. And so what I want to do is just close with an encouragement to pray. As you consider the anxiety that this season might bring, as you are tempted to grumble, let's be prayerful. What I'd like to do is just ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. And take the Lord's Prayer, just a section at a time here in closing, as an encouragement to pray. One of the reasons that we may not pray is we mistakenly think that we're not good enough at it. And so it's very wise and kind of the Lord to correct our understandings of how good at prayer we should be before we pray. He says, when you pray... Don't be like the hypocrites who like to be seen by others. That is, we think that prayer is something of a performance. It might be a performance for others. It might be a performance for even God, but it isn't. It's not a performance. Go into secret. Don't be seen. Your Father in heaven is um, a much more tender and kind evaluator than your fellow human beings. He welcomes you. He welcomes all. All of you, any kind of you, the simplest, most faltering of prayers, right into his presence. And so your prayer life isn't about performance. This is what it means to be justified by faith, isn't it? We don't have to come to God and our salvation is not based on how good or long or perfect we pray. It's based on Christ. Uh, We also see that we don't have to be very wordy in prayer in verse 7. Very simple, brief prayers are enough. Um, He isn't impressed with how long you and I 
pray. And uh, so let your prayers be very simple, very plain, very hidden. Many of your prayers will be secretly hidden in your heart. And so the expectations for your performance are very, very low. In fact, success is just simply doing it. It's just simply getting into asking God whatever. And you'll notice that the first thing we're taught is that we are praying to our Father who is in heaven. That isn't a statement of distance. That is, God is very far off, and so we need to shout or something like that. It's a statement of power and of authority. It's also a statement of who is in power and authority is as near to you and as kindly disposed to you as a father. Now, some of you have experienced very difficult fathers on this earth, and so you are to take care not to substitute what your earthly father was or what your church fathers have been like to you or even your government fathers have been like to you for the heavenly father. He is infinitely better. But it's to remind you of our adoption in Christ. That we were once lost without hope. We had only fear of eternity when we considered our death. But God came to us in grace. As a father, he brought us to himself in his son. He adopted us and he's given us a home. And nothing can pluck us from his heavenly home because he is greater than all. And so when we pray, we are praying to our father We are praying to one who wants what is eternally best for us. He is in control of all. He is our Father in heaven. He is above all. He rules all. Viruses bow to him. Governments only do as he ordains. But we should also remember in this word Father, that he is our Father who loves us enough to discipline us. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read that uh, he disciplines us as a father for our good. And so you and I should receive this season as loving discipline. Of course, he's disciplining our world. We have an evil world. Our country continues to slaughter the unborn. And there's even forgiveness of that sin. We are greedy. We are sexually immoral. We destroy families and ongoing divorce. And so this is discipline for our world, but it's discipline for us as children too. He is disciplining us for our lack of faith, for our lack of prayerfulness. And so let's learn. Let's be willing to draw near to him who is disciplining us. He, he disciplines us so that we might draw near to him in grace. We also see that we are to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so the one thing that we are to want more than all other things during this season is for God's name to be glorified. There is nothing that could give you more joy. If we're going to rejoice in the Lord always, the one thing that we rejoice in above all other things is that our Father's name be hallowed. That is, God isn't bringing us through this season for any other reason above than he get all of the glory. That's what he wants. And so that should be our first and highest commitment. And if you want to learn to live with less anxiety... Learn to be anxious for that above all other things. You'll learn to be less anxious over the things that you can't control on this earth if you'll learn to be more concerned with God's name being gloried, uh, glorified above and beyond all other things. And so, our temporal, temporal pleasure and ease 
isn't God's priority in this world. His glory is. And so mothers, I know this is an anxious time for you. You're wondering what's going to happen to your children. Or children, this might be an anxious time for your elderly or, or sick parents. But don't forget that God created your children, dear mothers and fathers, for his glory. And children, God created your parents for his glory. And though you have many worries and concerns for their well-being, I would encourage you to learn to be content that your children were created to give God glory and he's going to do whatever is most fitting for his glory in the lives of your children and children for their parents. And so rest in that. Let's be prayerful that God would get all the glory during these times. And we see that our Father is glorified as we pray that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as in heaven. Can I... What a wonder that is that somehow God has connected our praying for that with its being accomplished. Isn't that something? In heaven, everything is as it should be because everything obeys God perfectly. Heaven must be an amazing place, a wonder. The perfect and good will of God is always done, and so there is perfect peace and security and joy and satisfaction. So if you consider again Philippians 4, those verses, rejoice in the Lord always. Be reasonable because God is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but present your request to, Father, to God in heaven, and his peace will be yours. That's a description of heaven. The Lord is right there at hand in heaven, in sight, not by faith like us. It is a place of rejoicing, of everyone being reasonable, of uh, no anxiety, and yet God providing us everything. And so what we're doing is praying that to come down here. And that will only happen as people turn to Christ and learn to live by faithful obedience to his commands. Because obedience to his commands is what creates the peace and harmony and joy and satisfaction that we so desperately want. And so when we're praying for uh, God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as heaven, we're praying for faithful obedience of people who love Jesus. So that's what we're praying for. We're praying that we would rejoice always in the Lord, that we would be reasonable because God is at hand, that we would be anxious for nothing but prayerful in all things. That's what we're praying for. And then, very kindly of God, he teaches us to present all of our requests to him. And so please, brothers and sisters, do not be too proud to ask for God, even those things that you'd be embarrassed to ask others for. We do want to mature in our requests, but aren't we just simply taught to come to God as children? I think it's very helpful that we are taught here to ask for daily bread. Can there be anything more menial to ask for, more seemingly trivial. Who would ever even think that we would need to ask for that? I think he's showing us that we can pray for anything because we can pray for that thing. And and we have to ask frequently, don't we? It's called daily bread. And so God is um, not like we as parents are. Sometimes we get frustrated with presenting requests. I remember once when uh, our 
older two sons, Peter and James, were younger. And I don't remember where we were driving on vacation somewhere. And Peter was, I think, in the front seat with me. And he was asking me question after question after question after question after question. And finally, I put him on a limit. Like, I only let him ask questions for a few more minutes or a certain amount of questions because it was wearing me out, the requests. God isn't like me. God isn't like our fathers. He's asking us to pray for daily bread. He wants you to bring all of your requests, no matter what they are, all of the time. Even the most necessary and tiniest of things, God is pleased to have us ask. And so draw near to him. Ask anything. Bring all of your requests all of the time. And what do we need to ask more frequently for than forgiveness of our sins? I don't think it's disconnected to go from daily bread to forgive us our debts. What you and I need more, what drives our behavior and our thought life more is our need for atonement. That's what we want more than we want all things. We want atonement. And here is God simply telling us to to ask for it. I love this about the gospel. It is not about your performance. It isn't about you praying a certain amount of certain kinds of prayers. It isn't about you outweighing your bad deeds with good deeds. It isn't about you learning to swear a little less or eat this a little more, any of that. Atonement is simply this. Christ died in your place for our sins. And so when you sin, just simply ask for forgiveness for it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. And then we should be so forgiving. God, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Isn't that what we're praying for right now? Keep us from the temptation to be anxious. Keep us from the temptation to grumble. Keep us from the temptation to treat others as we wouldn't want to be treated. God, keep us from this. And then as we're forgiving, God in heaven forgives you. Let's close on that. Isn't that wonderful? But your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you can realize that, that God in heaven, your creator, the one who has given you everything in your life, if he is that free and that quick to forgive you, what can't you forgive anybody else? And so that's what our God is like. And I pray that these things help you as you go through this season. Let's pray. God in heaven, we praise you for your word. It is right. It is beautiful. It is pure. It is powerful. And we ask now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work it in us. You would give us faith to live in accordance with what we've read, that we would rejoice in you always, that our reasonableness, that we would be reasonable, kind, decent people to each other because you are at hand, that we would be anxious for nothing, but that we would be prayerful. And so God, please affect these things in our lives for your glory. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Let's pray, really. Uh, I want to urge you to let your first response to anything going on to be prayerful. Be praying for each other. Be praying for the churches in our area. Be praying for our leaders. Be praying for safety. And so let's, um, as we have a slower pace of life, God is teaching us to pray, so let's pray. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.